It's not a good time. I got chipstall. Taking nightmares from humans and forcing them into the mind of a girl you've trapped between planets. Are you confronting us? Yeah. Thanks for lending a helping hand. Series 12, Episode 7, Can You Hear Me? Discussing this 7th episode will be myself, Neo from Australia, as well as Ingiga from England, and our friends Storm from Russia and Tomtit, also from Australia, but not the part I'm from, which seems relevant in an episode about setting the companions back in their mutual hometown of Sheffield to poke at their characterizations a bit. So to start, can I ask... Just what are the fearsome Chagaskas terrorising Aleppo in 1380? Nothing, it would seem. Generic nightmare creatures, I, I took it. I don't think they were based on anything from Tahira's personal life, as far as I could ascertain, but I might have missed something in the episode. I think there was nothing. It was just a CGI monster. Yeah, I didn't understand how it's connected to Tahira personally, too. Maybe she had a phobia of sloths or something, because they had kind of cute sloth faces, I thought. And sleeping too, because... Yeah, the sleeping like... <laughs> That would have been a true nightmare. But what did we think of the episode in general? Well, in a way, it's I'm kind of glad that we've reached the point where the 13th Doctor's tyranny has finally become untenable, and the, the public seems to have uh, reacted against it a little bit. That That appalling display of... That appalling lack of tact from the Doctor at the end, I think it... um risks overshadowing the rest of the episode, which it must be said was um, extremely average. But uh, the BBC did promise us an episode that was two weeks away from the finale, and boy, they they delivered on that. (laughs) So we're talking, of course, of uh, at the very end, and it's always, for better or worse, you're right, the endings of episodes do overshadow everything that comes before. This happens so often. Graham opens his heart about being scared of his cancer coming back and him realising how that fear was like overtaking him and how he feels and everything is being very vulnerable and opening up. And what does our, uh, our lovely hero do? <laughs> she sort of makes it about herself, doesn't she? Like she always does. Yeah, she, she talks about how she's very awkward and she's going to go over to the console and think of something to say later. And then she just sets a course for Mary Shelley and life goes on. That, yeah, that that's provoking quite a lot of reactions in regards to that or the rest of the episode what did gig and storm think uh, uh f- well i thought 
on the whole, it was kind of like there were bits of a semi-decent Moffat-era-like episode grafted on to a very Chibnall-esque framework of a script. You know, it had lots of those usual kind of bothers and irritations and awkwardnesses that you, you expect of um, episodes from this era at this point. But um, it was refreshing in some ways just to get an episode that seemed to care about having characters in it, even though it was totally undercut by the fact it's like the 18th episode of these respective characters' tenures. So, you know, it's all way too little too late and doesn't quite feel of a piece with you know, the previous episodes. Although that might be a good thing because you can sort of look at it on its own merits. And... Um, and it had kind of, um, I liked the visual gimmicks and I liked the maybe slightly more ambitious ideas than the, uh, maybe we're used to. I think it's a bit of an it takes you away situation. I feel like people are going to praise it a lot because it's mildly more envelope pushing than the, the utter bland pap surrounding it. I think it was, again, pretty average episode. I mean, in terms how it was plotted and uh, how um, how engaging it was and uh, stuff like that, it was uh, usual tribunal stuff. Hmm. Uh, but li- I genuinely liked uh, Yasmin bits. I think they kind of deserved to be in a different show, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe in an episode without uh, Immortals. Or, uh, or Chagascas, yes. Yeah, and uh, Ryan's stuff and uh, overall all dream sequences and stuff uh, were nice and uh, uh, I kind of liked how they were done. I think there's something kind of amusing that between this and Arachnids in the UK to a degree and definitely Resolution, it's like the only episodes that really do much characterization of the characters are the ones where they're all back in Sheffield. Like, I know you, Storm, said something the other day, or referenced something the other day, about how it's not quite right for a sci-fi show about travel to only really hone in on the characters in the few times that they're not travelling. Like, I'm finding that quite odd across this era. I think it's like characterization has been boxed off into something that only happens in the mundane sphere, and characterization only seems to happen in the sense of finding out stuff about their home lives rather than stuff about you know what's how they're changing or growing as people from their adventures it's it's like learning the wrong lessons from the rtd era all over again you know because um in series one for example you know you've got points where rose goes home and reunites with jackie or mickey and there's characterization stuff that happens there but that's not the only time it happens it might be some of the more memorable stuff but yeah i just feel like that those things have been conflated so much like companions go home companions get characterization and now they're just sort of locked together and chibnall doesn't want to like try and explore them any further it's a lot of like the idea of characterization here seems to very much be just like kind of showing a character's backstory. Like even in Resolution, most of it was like, here's Ryan's relationship with Aaron. But then there was progression at the end. And I guess that's something. But here it's like, it just feels something kind of endemic of the era to me, where it's like signaling or substituting something that should be there, but not actually doing the thing. It's like at the end when 13 says, I'm socially awkward, I'm going to go do this. Whereas when the 12th Doctor was socially awkward, he would do something socially awkward, like he would keep talking about planets instead of what Clara wanted to talk around. 
he wouldn't like say i'm gonna be socially awkward now like do you know what i mean exactly what this era does it's like it says what it's doing without doing it per se i mean that's a lot of words to say tell don't show isn't it like that's what it's doing it's telling without showing yeah i think it's almost like it's basically the law approach but for characters we got law about yaz and ryan and in and maybe graham in this episode but maybe um and in yaz's case it was almost like learning about a different character because you know the yaz we see three years ago it's like who who is she like she's so much more interesting than the as we have today like it's like a different person i just find it very difficult to actually reconcile the two is Yaz meant to be 19 like Ryan? I guess they went to the same year, didn't they? Yeah. I can't identify any attributes that would be like specific to any age above the age of like <laughs> yeah, 16, you know. <laughs> what uh, bothers me about how characterization is done in, in this era is that um, there's a clear distinction between characterization scenes and, uh, you know, Doctor Who scenes. It, yeah. Uh, it's very distinct. Like half of the episode is... Uh, uh, casual Doctor Who run around with uh, techno bubble and orbs and uh, space uh, evil man and uh, when it comes to characterization it's uh, uh, like a random scenes completely detached from everything else like in the resolution the cafe scene which just was just two people talking in the cafe and uh, this uh, Yasmin flashback it's all happens uh, to be detached from the story, actual episodes of Tolkien. Yeah, you're right. The weird thing is is it makes it seem like the show doesn't exactly want to be Doctor Who. <laughs> like, like if it's saying the Doctor Who segments can't achieve characterizing the characters and we need to do it in these more... Uh, prestige is definitely the wrong word, but these very different toned scenes, that's really odd and it doesn't feel like a great reflection on like the concept of what the show can do like the Moffat eras and the RTD eras and classic as well would like knit characterization through the characters just like throughout the actual episode like if you notice Clara's taking a lot of risks in your filler episodes that's telling you something about the character we don't have her not do that at all and they get one scene back with a gran where she like goes gran I'm taking so many risks lately. <laughs> well, I think the unfortunate thing is that there are critics who, unless the character development is specifically signified, like we are in the character development space this episode, like if that's not happening, that they don't think the character development exists, like unless it is, you know, telegraphed. Like that review which said, like, character development has not existed in Doctor Who in a long time and finally Chris Chibnall has brought it back with this episode. <laughs> like, did you see that review? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're so right. Uh, that's bringing me right back to um, the people that would, that were so thrown off by the Twelfth Doctor in The Magician's Apprentice suddenly acting different than he did in Into the Dalek. Where did this come from? Why is he acting different after Death in Heaven and Last Christmas? Who can say? We didn't get our delineated scenes of him all but talking to the camera about why he was doing that. He was sitting on the side of the road and then Ozzy Osbourne pulls up with his six string and <laughs> convinces him to have a change of heart. Here's your new personality. Go off, have fun. With regards to the Yaz thing, so the relevant quotes from her sister, from like the dreams, the flashbacks, whatever, are, hi, I didn't know who to call. We need help. Do it right this time. I won't be calling anyone. No point. You're weak. You run. Nobody's coming, Yaz. And then the friendly cop says... 
your sister's worried you're going to do something stupid, you're getting bullied at school, your grades are wonky, your parents don't know what's up, you feel trapped and alone. So this is getting pretty commonly read as uh, Yaz was going to attempt suicide or had attempted suicide or something of that nature. Is that how you guys saw it? I, I'm not sure about that, to be honest, because even on rewatch, it seems like Obviously, there's a possibility that if she runs away, she might end up doing something like that. But it seems to be more oriented around her basically running away and being alone and being abandoned. And in the dream, her sister doesn't even call anyone to go pick her up. So it's a sense of being alone. Like in her dream, like the cop disappears and she's just alone in this kind of landscape. So I'm not sure if it was that oriented around her actually being like set on suicide. But certainly that's a possibility of what could have happened. Yeah, I feel like someone who like actually runs away is more so someone who just has absolutely no idea of what they're going to do. But I mean, the scene certainly lends itself to, you know, personal interpretations and whatnot, yeah. but I didn't see it that way. Um, but yeah. I don't actually read it this cynically personally, but I think you could read it as it's just kind of intentionally vague to project yeah. what you'd like the dark moment of her past to be, you know, like you could read it as suicide. You could read it as, quotes just running away you could read it as whatever you want it's a cry for help i don't actually think it was like a cynically uh, insert your own thing into it i think it was just you know vague because that's how uh the moment was written but certainly it accomplishes the idea of yaz has a dark backstory that we get some light on I'd just like to point out how rare it is for a scene in Chibnall Zero to actually have people discussing competing interpretations of it. Because usually everything is so, you know, narrating exactly what we're feeling and seeing to the audience at all times. Like, so having anything like the sort of um, quote unquote Lynchian dream sequences <laughs> in this episode where, you know, there's actual room for interpretation is pretty rare. There are a few sequences like that in this episode, like when 13, she uses the force to um, get her sonic screwdriver out of her pocket. <laughs> I've heard people say that those were magnetic handcuffs, but there was no line to explain that they were magnetic handcuffs, so I have to assume some kind of psychokinesis going on there. I mean, it was uh, a Harry Potter trick, wasn't it? You know, Accio yeah. sonic screwdriver, and just kind of came to her. I, I, I rewound that scene, like, five times, like, po probably more than five, just to see, like, if they reversed the footage or if there was a wire that they didn't remove or something, but it just, it just looked so wrong. Anyway. With the Yaz thing... I feel like that ends Ryan and his friends' moments. A lot of this stuff, it's like, it's loads of viewers can relate. I can, you know, relate to plenty of the stuff in the episode. It's stuff that speaks to people, you know, troubled teenage, you know, life experiences or mental health experiences and that. And I think the episode gets a lot of goodwill from doing this. And I guess you could say it's not undeserved. But the cop origin story of Yaz kind of, bothers me in that like the episode actually never comes out and says it but I feel like the idea is kind of this is why she became a cop and I find that um not super appealing do you guys know what I mean by this kind of it's, origin cop thing it's crude isn't it like oh I saw someone do job as a child so now I will do job it's like the most simplistic way of determining someone's life like direction for a character i feel like in a better show we would see like yaz's sort of disappointment in entering the police force that not all police officers are like that humane that they might not like stop to console someone by the road but instead it's sort of just left to the viewer's imagination like yaz becomes a cop because they um i don't know help people psychologically but 
yeah, you're not. <laughs> I, f- I got the sense that you're not really supposed to think about it. I feel like I, I, I'm slightly worried about what will happen if we um, teach kids that policemen are mental health counsellors who will always come to your aid when you're in crisis. Yeah, it's. It, I feel like it reduces her... Well, this sounds kind of farcical to say. It kind of <laughs> reduces her character, such as it is, to say a cop was nice to her and now she's a cop to be nice to people because the nice cop was nice to her. The episode never actually says this, so I'm kind of arguing it shadows a little bit here, but it bothered me a little. What I felt was kind of like an origin story thing going on with her. Moffat has a great uh, speech where he talks about how people can't really, in real life, illustrate why they're in the vocations they are or why they're the people they are, certainly at a certain age. Uh, And I I always think about that when people ask that question, I say, what do you do for a living? When did you decide? And everyone's got a confused answer. You don't know why you are the person you are or why you did. And the reasons change from day to day. And there's nothing wrong with TV being TV and writing things in a very TV style. But I see a lot of praise for this era and this episode in particular in being like how psychologically realistic it is or how true to life it is in terms of human experiences and psychology. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't really getting that from the cop origin story. I think, to be honest, I think it's perfectly reasonable to read that Yaz flashback as her origin story, so to speak, because there is nothing else to to grab onto regarding Yaz's origins. This is the only time we've actually seen into Yaz's past or even her interiority in any meaningful way. Like it's the first time, so of course we're gonna like we're gonna draw conclusions from that. No, I think I think you are absolutely meant to assume that she was inspired to become a cop by this encounter. Like because because you know we've seen nothing else to even kind of moderately indicate why she went in this direction so yeah i think it's valid to criticize the show on these grounds to be honest what about the grounds of the ryan and Thibaut scenes what did we all think of that i would be more inclined to think positive positively of them if Thibaut had like any presence or voice in between the very beginning and the very end of the episode like i think he has one scene with ryan and it's sort of a comedic scene like oh there's wacky people shooting fingers whatever but at no point does he sort of impact on the main story, it's just completely detached. And um, the other thing that bugged me about it was like, Ryan, I think his, he's like, I don't want, he's sort of not, I, I got the sense that like, he wasn't exactly doing like enough to sort of help Thibaut. Like he never really considers that because he wasn't there for him, like that might've had an impact on his I mental got health. Chips, I got chips <laughs> I got chips. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, was, I was just kind of thinking like, has it ever occurred to Ryan that like, he's been, you know, he hasn't been around for Thibaut and I don't know, it just felt like a lot of stuff was missing with that story. But, um, the scene at the end where he's talking to all his friends, I thought was, you know, fairly well written and albeit brief, but you know. Yeah. The thing with how that turned out it's like you know after like you said Tit, you know ryan's been away for so long and he comes back and it was so easy and pat a solution for him to just go okay tibo you've got to go to this uh group therapy session bye okay now you know depression solved well done <laughs> like oh thanks ryan you know if only it was that easy you know i think there was something a bit too convenient about it all you know ryan just sort of yeah it's like sticking your parents in an old folks home or like your kid at a boot camp <laughs> like it's just getting them away like doing this vague gesture oh, i guess i care about you enough to put you where you belong it's that that ryan and Thibaut resolution was the other thing along with 
13 dismissing Graham's fears that like felt really chilling to me in the episode, like almost disturbing and how not okay it was. Like the guy is clearly wanting Ryan bad. Like this isn't subtext. He's flat out saying, I get lost without my mate. I need you here. You know, this kinds of things. And Ryan's response as well. I have to, you know, go see Frankenstein. I have to go do these random arbitrary adventures every week. What else am I to do? And in the TARDIS at the end, he's like, hmm, maybe this is wrong. And like, yes, it is wrong. Your mate was right there telling you, can you like stay with me? Can you stay here for the night? Can I see you more? He just leaves. I thought I was worried I was being too harsh on Ryan, but I'm glad you guys are like on the same page. But I think the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, but like we hadn't seen Thibaut before Spyfall. Correct. Yeah. So like two sort of, an average viewer who maybe is, it's like to the casual viewer who thinks that like Thibaut maybe is not a, like a really close friend. They're sort of tricked into thinking that like, it's fine. But I mean, I guess just from the messages that we get in this episode, like, like you said, like Thibaut is very clearly sending like a message of like he, Ryan's friendship is important to him. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's like the episode, the series has not established um, Ryan and Thibaut's friendship and yet it's being shown to us and there's just this massive dissonance to all of it. And that's just a consequence of like when you sequester the character development episode to every other week, it's just a romp. It's not a great way to write a drama series. And like this episode is just a perfect example of why. Even if they weren't super close friends, like what has Ryan got going on? There's no urgency with traveling with 13. Like there's no point to it. It's just meant to be fun. He's not, like, getting anything important or necessary out of these arbitrary random adventures with the Patings and the Praxius and whatever. Like, what's the... Why is this more important to him than his friend who's, like, crying out for help? It's, I just find it so bizarre and, like, dislikable about Ryan, who's normally all right. You know, when he gets characterized, he's normally a nice enough guy, but it's, like, so cold. And for what? Like, why is the TARDIS so important? He could even ask 13 can't you just pick me up at like X point? Like it's a time travel show. Mm. That'd be a way to contrive it around. If you're starting to do these issues with characters like this, you're inviting so many questions of the viewers. And when you don't answer them, it makes the characters seem like assholes. Uh I think it feels weird because we still kind of don't know the relationship, relationship between the doctor and the farm. Like, um, why do they need together? Like it, it was all vaguely established. Like they all need escapism, like and stuff. But uh, the doctor only opened up to them like after a year of uh, travels in Spyfall Part Two, and uh, uh, they seem pretty disconnected. And uh, there's no, like you said, there's no. Um, urgency for them to be together so uh, their dynamic is a bit uh, unclear and uh, it uh, makes it weird to uh, draw connections with uh, real life and stuff with uh, Tibo. yeah it, everything's so incoherent and vague with you know the characters in general and you know this connects to i think the 13 graham thing as well like when she when, you know, she's supposed to be the more human and relatable doctor, but to Graham, she behaves almost more alien-like than you know we've seen from eleven or twelve. You know, it's it's like there's just there's no real. It, they just don't seem to have a clear sense of what the connections are, or why they 
care about each other. It's I understand Graham and Ryan traveling together. It's like they've gotten a lot closer recently. They're both getting over Grace's death. But there's no way in the world Graham would approve of Ryan palming off his mate like that. Like Graham would not be happy with that at all. I can't see the character being pleased with this. Can you? Like this is his fatherly figure trying to be moral. Remember how Graham treated Aaron in resolution and this kind of thing? Like Graham would not want Ryan to do random meaningless adventures with him every week instead of helping his mate who's actually in need. It's actually a good point with um, bringing up Aaron, because Aaron's whole thing in Resolution was running away from his responsibilities and from, you know, life and abandoning people. And now Ryan's basically doing the same thing, isn't he? Except he's almost getting somewhat of a pass for it, or rather he's not, there's not as much criticism of that choice as maybe there ought to be. Like, he has doubts momentarily at the end of this episode, but then they're just discarded again. What about Graham's little scenes, his flashbacks, his dreams? What did we think of those? He comes out mostly unscathed of this episode, I think. Yeah. By virtue of having very little to do. I mean, more than anything, I think the fact that he keeps having to deal with, like, the ghost of Grace is just really depressing. And it's depressing on, a, like, a meta level as well that Sharon Sharon B. Clark has to keep coming back to, like, just play this, like, oh, feel sad about my death role, like, episode after episode. And, like, Graham just has to bear the emotional weight of both the loss of Grace and he's kind of a, he's almost the moral guidance for the fam in a way that 13 um, proves not to be. And Graham just gets like spat in his face at the end of this episode for basically bearing all the emotional weight of the cast. Um, So I don't know, I, I, you know, I came out of this episode feeling pretty sorry for him, but um, that, that scene in his dinky little apartment, um, I don't know if that was his apartment or his friends, but I just really liked that set. Like something about Chip who just really makes me long for just, you know, the, the ordinary, like just the grinding repetitive nature of like the adventuring. It makes just Sheffield seem really romantic almost. And, but we only get to see Sheffield like once or twice a year. So it's sort of like a weird inversion of RTD who where like ordinary life is so grinding that you, you long for like the, the chaotic, you know, adventures. And this is sort of like the inverse of that, where it's like, please just take me back to Sheffield, take me back to these cramped little rooms. But, um, yeah. Anyway, Graham, uh, yeah, he's fine. I guess. What do you guys think? I was not a fan of him in series 11 at all. I found him very grating. I found he's getting more attention than the other two companions grating. And I found his humor grating, but I don't know what's happened in the intervening years. I think it was the soft shoe shuffle that started changing my opinion. And now it's just seeing him be like denigrated so much. I've come around. I can't help but like Graham now. I feel sorry for the guy. And like the constant sort of jokey ribbing from Ryan, like he calls Graham dark and twisted in this episode, which feels (laughs) based on nothing whatsoever. And in Praxius, I think he had some jab at him, which feels completely unjustified. Just, um, I was just gonna say like the soft shoe shuffle in Spyfall. For me, it felt like that um, onion article where it's like the worst man you've ever seen just said or did something unbelievably awesome (laughs) like i hate graham so much but i'm just having such a great time anyway yeah yeah i think it's at this point i've just given up on the matter of being annoyed at finding like in this fam of the first woman doctor you know and two companions of color and then the one old white guy like all series 11 i was raging against how the old white guy was getting the most attention and the most characterization such as that it is 
and him being like the fan favorites that annoyed me a lot and he certainly wasn't my favorite but at this point i'm just so wearied by this era that i've kind of given in and yeah like i like him the best of the three companions now i can't help it you've won bradley I think what I find to be different with Ver Graham in Series 12 compared to Series 11 is that now there's something um, there's something tragic about him. He's sort of shuffling around and he, it's almost like there's there's a there's a humbleness to him which doesn't feel like it was there. It's like he's there's something there's something pathetic about his presence which makes us more sympathetic perhaps. Like you know stuff like this episode where he just he, yeah, he's just, he's like a, he's become more cute almost. He's just the bumbling, kind of doddery, almost Wilf-esque figure. Whereas in series 11, there was this whole, ooh, oh, so angsty, the, the death of Grace, Ghost Grace, and my paternal relationship with Ryan. Like, now, now all of that seems to be like out the window and they don't care about it anymore. So he's just, he's just tagging along with the others and it's like, yeah. okay. I think we have enough distance from his blame that on the dyspraxia as well. Why don't you at this point? Like that, that was so long ago and it seems I to be- I completely forgot about case. that. Yeah. It's happened like one time and that I think it doesn't seem like a pattern of behavior. So we've kind of gotten over it or at least we've forgotten it. So yeah, Graham seems a lot more, a lot less unlikable. I should phrase it actually. To be honest, I think Graham's dream sequence in this app and his um his arc in general and what they were doing with him in relation to the fear stuff and the nightmare stuff, it seemed like it had the least uh, effort put in. Like bringing back Ghost Grace, that feels incredibly like repetitive at this point. It's like they've run out of ideas of what to do with his character. Like, okay, he's got cancer. We knew that in you know, the start of series eleven, and he's you know worried about that cancer coming back. Well, you know, of course he is. That you you kind of would be, and we don't really. It doesn't really become any more complex than that. You know, of course, Ghost Grace says, "Oh, you should have saved me, Graham." You know, it, it's like we've reverted almost. Like they haven't thought of anywhere new or interesting to take his character we're just kind of rehashing and regurgitating these concerns from his first fucking episode like- the, the, the real issue with the cancer stuff to me is that in this show if you keep drawing attention to the cancer stuff the obvious question is going to keep looming bigger and bigger in viewers minds which is why doesn't the doctor just cure it mm. like she's basically a space wizard and we know she can zap to all sorts of crazy hospitals we've seen them in previous episodes Like, why doesn't the Doctor just cure Graham? I know this, we're getting to kind of break the show moments. Like, why doesn't the Doctor just fix this? Why doesn't she do that? But when you keep putting so much attention on the cancer, obviously, viewers are going to wonder about that. So I'm wondering about that now. But I guess I had it answered by this episode. She just simply doesn't like him that much. I'm kind of fantasizing about them exploring that in an episode now. Like the doctor tries to take a companion to a future hospital and there's some crazy law of time, which (laughs) means she can't. There's another thing with the Doctor's relationship with her companions that I found a little bit unnerving. And it was when Jodie Whittaker was doing her little heaven-sent moments when she was alone and narrating to herself, they're not here, are they? You guys go this way. Who am I supposed to share all the interesting stuff with? Between that and her being weirdly dismissive of the companions earlier this series and basically telling them to F off when they asked what's up with her, are you guys feeling... Because I'm feeling that the companions are less actual people to her and more kind of avatars. Like they're people to expose it to. They're people to get impressed by what she can do. Like the, oh, tea at Yaz's, I love a Yaz stuff. It almost feels kind of, I don't think tokenistic is the right word. Soulless? It's not that exactly. It's like, 
overstating the fact. I think the fact she literally did not notice when they wandered off and got captured by the villain of the week. That that's like that's like the the pinnacle of it for me. Like, I I do I don't know if there's any self awareness going on here, but it just seems like. I, that was actually somewhat of a holy shit moment. Like, the whole thing with this doctor was supposed to be that she was, you know, she had friends instead of companions. And she was more human. She was more relatable. And she, she just, she just doesn't even register their presence. And I'm not sure if they're doing this intentionally or if they even thought about it or if it's a, a trend or a pattern, but they just don't seem to have a handle on what they should and shouldn't do with this character. It kind of feels like, like, other previous doctors, they, the in-show reason given for why they need companions was so they don't become like twisted and go off the rails and whatnot. But with thirteen, I feel like she only needs companions because she needs someone to, like, feel superior to or exert her moral superiority to. Like, I feel like if the companions weren't around, she would pretty much be okay. Like. Because she is pretty much okay in this episode when she's separated from them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get the sense of, like, she needs them as much as I did with other Doctors. Of course, the irony there is she's completely fine on her own, despite the fact that very recently her oldest friend nuked her home planet. She was supposed to have all this inner conflict about that, but they've just you know, completely forgotten about it, of course. So when she's on her own, she just she's like, oh, do do do. I'm just going to, you know, do my usual happy-go-lucky shtick. <laughs> I felt like um, 13's dialogue in this episode felt so uniquely grating that, like, I felt like Chibnall had to have stepped in and maybe written at least some of it, and that might account for, you know, some of the co-writing credit, because there are just these gags that keep showing up, like, when she says, um, like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Oh, wait, I actually don't know what I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, that formula, like, I have a plan, I don't have a plan. Like, she says that again, and it's like, does Chris Chibnall really see 13 as such a unique such a unique and specific character that like he has to step in and write her dialogue. But I don't know, I could be wrong and it could be like all Charlene James, but I, it, a lot of it felt very chibi. And also some of the like eternal references felt very chibi as well. I think you're right in the lot of it feeling chibi. I don't think the guest writer wrote the Celestial Toymaker reference. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's a Chris Chibnall thing. I, yeah, that, feel, <laughs> that feels extremely chibi. Like, just to not consider, you know, does ev- is everyone as big a fan of the Celestial Toymaker as Chib is? You know, is everyone, <laughs> does everyone love the ideas that the Celestial Toymaker puts forward? Or, like, is that just a unique Chib fascination? I don't think he's aware of that whole <laughs> discourse that goes on. Well, maybe, maybe John Dorney, he might count as a <laughs> So that, that, that law-dropping line is... The Eternals have their games, the Guardians have their power struggles. For me, this dimension is a beautiful board for a game the Toymaker would approve. So what do we think of this lore drop? Well, it's like Chibnall trying to, like, in a sort of Moff-esque manoeuvre, put, put a little bow around these, like, similar elements that have appeared in Doctor Who in the past. But in practice, it's really just him saying, hey, all this shit is exactly the same. (laughs) Like, we're just pulling the same old, like, tricks to God, sci-fi villain bullshit, and you'll enjoy it just because you enjoy the same shit over and over again. Look, he's even, like, he's even, like, teleporting back and forth like the Dream Lord and the Valiard did before him. They didn't draw attention to that, though. Like, they could have had a line where he's like, ooh, the Dream Lord and the Valiard would be proud of my spooky teleporting (laughs) skills. But, um... And it just confuses the whole thing because there are these strange similarities to the Eternals 
and the guardians, you have these like dualistic figures, but, um, it's not, it's just, it's just like repetition and we're expected to enjoy it just because it's like, it's like the old thing, but it's a new thing. But yeah, that's my take anyway. There wasn't really a dualism between the two of them, was there? So oh, not no. In the, not <laughs> in a yin-yang Black Guardian sense, like we were all expecting. It was just more like she was the, the boss and he was just her, her underling, basically, her, her orbiter. orbiter. What, what, is that, what is that twist that isn't a twist, by the way? Like, what, what does it change that they're both evil? <laughs> you know, what does it change about the story? Like, you think she's a prisoner, oh, she's not. We're just going to continue menacing the episode. Like... It doesn't. It's not relevant, and you know the whole fact that the um, the the whole threat of the the gods, the Zelen and whatnot, that doesn't meaningfully tie into like the mental health angle in any way. Which I thought it was going to, just because like that's what a a, a, an, a a normal episode would do. But there's just no connection between the two strands. It's just like middle of the episode, we're doing the the adventure plot, and start and the end, we're going to do some character shit. Even within the episode, there are character development zones. It's ridiculous. I thought there was a kernel of uh, an episode that would make sense somewhere in the script, which is um, they did this whole thing of where the Eternals have a fascination with human beings because well, well I say the Eternals, Zelen and Rakaya, you know these two, they have a fascination with human beings because of humans, let's say, a unique self-criticism, self-loathing. Uh, internal internally directed cruelty and you know that's that's an angle at least it's a way of looking at the whole mental illness mental health issue from a you know cosmic you know sci-fi bullshit sort of fantasy lens and i think you could spin an interesting conceit out of that but the trouble is you know they have to make it about you know basically the nightmare man and this whole oh i'm gonna give people nightmares and shit and it doesn't really lock together. I think it, you know, it, it's sort of, it's trying to connect something that's quite complicated with something that, you know, I mean, nightmares at the end of the day, like a kid's nightmares, it's not some, that's not necessarily some big mental health thing, is it? You know, dreams of just, <laughs> you know, it's the, the boogeyman, like, we're going to connect a child's fear of the boogeyman under their bed to, you know, Thibaut with crippling depression in his flat. Like, I don't know. And I was thinking of the whole backstory with, like, the animated sequence of the two warring planets. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be, like, relevant but no it was not to be it's just some like convoluted convoluted bullshit in the middle of the episode to um show off your new animated sequence and what i'm convinced i'm convinced that that animated sequence was they started working on that before the script was finished because it felt so like out of place like it didn't it just was so um not very useful it it was like okay they had a plan for some animated sequence and we'll finish the rest of the script around it later (laughs) and the two were just not really in sequence because you know animation takes a long time right so and yeah i liked the the gimmick of the animation i like the visual gimmicks in general in the episode it's better than just standing around you know yeah yeah it's better than them standing around and just relaying all that to us through verbal exposition but it's still it's it's just a waste of good effort and talent (laughs) it's disappointing i would have I would have loved it in, like, say, in It Takes You Away, for example, like, instead of just having a scene where they explain the solo tract that goes on for, like, a million years, they all suddenly switch to claymation and it's, like, some really fun, <laughs> yeah. like, educational sequence. But that no, it's great. just... Yeah, but it's just this week we get the animation exposition, which, you know, whatever. You know, with all our concerns about the episode, it, it just strikes me. You know what Ryan and Thibaut were talking? And Thibaut says, I'm finding things difficult at the moment. And Ryan says, have you spoken to anyone about it? Just speaking to you. <laughs> this is like a group therapy session <laughs> in the after effects of these episodes. Um, did you did you guys uh, enjoy like Zelen 
and his counterpart, whose name I don't remember because I'm not even sure they said it out loud. Uh, they probably yeah. did, but yeah. I liked Zelen. I like that actor Ian Gelder, Kevin Lannister, Decker from Tortured Children of Earth, the Rags from the Ghost Monument. I like him and he seemed to be having fun in that style I like of... You saw this a lot on Classic Who, when villains are just enjoying being villains. You can tell the actors enjoying themselves. That was nice. The other one was pretty good too. She had a proper cold, malicious air about her. These villains might have deserved a better episode. I did enjoy um, the, the, the performances. I thought Ian Gelder, he's just... I think he has a... He has this sort of uh, charm to him, despite obviously being you know, the evil, uh, bold boogeyman. And um, I liked when uh, the his female counterpart, when she popped up as well, and it's revealed that she's evil. I, you know, despite myself, I sort of loved that. There's just a certain arch, arch campness to it when she appears and she's suddenly got this evil expression, like, haha, I'm evil. It's it, that was that's fun. I think, as usual with the Chibnoyer, when you have some camp villain pop up, it's there's just kind of an infusion of fun that you're usually lacking for most of the rest of the episode. I don't know. I just, I really, I think there's something about the combination of like boredom and sadism, which just, it's just the most like boring thing to watch on screen for me. I mean, I I don't know. Just the fact that they're so like, oh, we need to pass the time, you know, whatever. And that's fine. But like, if, if your character's bored, they need to have a certain air of like entitlement or like pretension, like the Eternals did in Classic Who. But on top of that, there's also this, like, blah, ha, ha, I need to steal your dream. And the two things, like, the two modes, I feel like it just needed to pick one or the other. As it is, there's, it just, it's just sort of neutral. And, like, Ian Gelder, you know, he is fun, but, like, I feel like his, um, his presence was not enough to make those characters enjoyable. I just thought it was totally inert. And that scene where they're just standing on the street was so laughable. And you have these, like, bystanders walking by and they shoot, they shoot them in expression of, like, huh, like, what? What are they doing? <laughs> but like when innocent bystanders do that, they need to be killed. Otherwise, it's just a funny <laughs> moment of like, who are these fucking assholes standing on the street in the middle of the road, <laughs> holding their arms out? But no, they just walk past. Like they can't, they're not even interested enough to kill anyone. You know, honestly, uh, with the whole thing of like the big threat just being like a bit of malarkey going on in some street for a few minutes, it reminded me of that. Epi- it was like an episode of Class. It was like that episode of Class where the fucking tree fungus reaches into everyone's windows and then gets like run over with a bus at the end or something. Although you know, Class was infinitely more entertaining than this. I, I did like the scene where the kid's mum's like saying, "There's no bogeyman," and then someone appears and just goes, "That's not true." I wasn't sure if that was meant to be more scary than funny, but I thought it was very funny. It's like um that that Jonathan Frakes meme where he's like, "We made that one up." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another villain problem um, I'm having with this era in general. I, we talked about this a few episodes because it keeps happening. This episode had yet another jab at Russians. What's going on here? Why does this keep happening? I think it's just an attempt. It's been politically relevant. Yeah. <laughs> It's so grating in this era that's trying to present itself as like more enlightened. I'm on the subject of uh, Zelen, the villains, the Eternals. What do you guys think of that moment where Zelen compared himself to the Doctor? And obviously the Doctor refutes that comparison, but in light of what we were saying about 13 earlier and how, how much she treats the companions like her pets or like just i don't know like objects to talk at like could it be that actually there's more similarity between her and zelin than she's willing to admit i choose to believe that the doctor feeds off of graham's nightmares and that's why she (laughs) treats him the way she does but um 
it's one of those things where it's like a little voice in the back of my mind says, maybe this is a good show. And maybe like the, the main remark to Graham at the end will be picked up on later. And that will be like a character arc. But then, you know, the rational part of my brain says that's not going to happen. But, um, people used to level that at Moffat, like, Oh, none of these things are going to get picked up, which he did pick them up. It was always just at the last minute, like Matt Smith's literal last episode. It's like, here's all the loose ends. But, um, yeah, somewhere even later than that, like the woman in the show, even later. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the similarity between the Doctor and Zelen, yeah, I buy it. I, I hate her. <laughs> so why not? Uh, in the resolution, when the Doctor says uh, to Zelen that uh, immort- uh, Eternals, whatever, are so entitled and so spoiled and uh, they don't care about what's left behind, I totally thought that um, all of this applies to the Doctor, actually. Especially this in uh, incarnation, because uh, to me, uh, thirteen often comes across uh, as a sort of um, spoiled child in a way. I mean, the doctor comes from a ultra uh, privileged position of uh, having uh, a time machine, a magic wand, and uh, She's uh, uh, not. I mean, she's not saying it uh, it enough in a way. Uh, she always uh, gets the uh, moral high ground. I mean, she gets to lecture the first black doctor on whether it's okay to use weapons or not. Uh, she gets to uh, leave. Uh, Blam at the state it was in the end of the episode, aka do nothing. Uh, and she like can do all of this, and she uh, can care about all of this, and she maybe should care about all of this, but uh, she uh, doesn't. She always goes around saying uh, the ending line, like the moral of the episode, like. Uh, humans uh, can overcome mental illnesses or racism bad or whatever, but uh, she's not uh, uh, doing stuff. She's entertaining herself, traveling, and not engages. She gets speeches like that big one at the end of the episode, but she just doesn't get. She, she's not. She's not really. It's just so superficial, isn't it? Like anyone can give a speech to the villains, you know, a self-righteous speech about how, oh, you know, uh, humans are so great. But it's just it, she. She often doesn't seem to back up any of these lofty morals with her um, <laughs> her actions. And you know, actually, just on a to briefly diverge for a minute, it's interesting. You mentioned that um, the Doctor's very privileged, and she was lecturing the first Black Doctor and all that. I do wonder. In in light of the whole timeless child thing and what we might potentially be finding out about the mysteries of the Doctor, does Chibnall plan on like undercutting that? Even this idea of her as coming from privilege, like what? I, I just I'm wondering if is Chibnall going to take that in some place, which means even the criticism is now like thrown out the window. I don't know. Um, it, it, it was amusing. She worked it, her way it, to privilege. <laughs> She yeah, pulled yeah. her up by her own bootstraps. Oh my god, that's even worse. It was funny that in this episode, instead of a nightmare like the companions had, she just had a timeless child arc tease that lasted like 30 seconds, like 20 seconds. That even. ridiculous 
that son of the mask shot of her face. <laughs> I actually thought the timeless child scene uh, was very relevant for the episode because I thought it was of a pair with the line, your worst fears, my creativity. Yeah, Zelling is Chibnall's self-insert. Um, speaking, of things co- speaking of things coming back in the dream sequences, um, can we say the dregs in Ryan's nightmares? The dregs return. Like, they are a two-episode monster now. How do you feel I, about that? I really liked that. I thought... I, I love the design of the dregs, and I find the dregs really amusing, which is mostly just from how that episode turned out and how they look and how they walk and <laughs> the effects, how they were handled. I just find them a very amusing, kind of endearing monster. So I was delighted to see them again. And also that Ryan's been having nightmares about climate change, I guess, and the show's version of climate change just being like this kind of random single fire going on. Like, it's it was... Um, uh, it was amusing. I think it was a fear of being uh, away for too long. And like uh, uh, the logical culmination of this fear is that he was away for so long that uh, like literally everything ended when he was away. I think I actually really liked that uh, bit with Drex. I think it was uh, about something <laughs> and it yeah. wasn't a mid-gest. I think... The whole climate change angle does, like, it threatens to be interesting. Like, a show about time travellers where the main characters are terrified that they have no future. Like, it's it's the sort of stuff that, like, a good series arc would be made of. But instead it was just a throwaway Ed Heim episode that nobody fucking liked. <laughs> That's fine, I guess. Uh, as far as the dregs in this episode go, I thought it was, like, um, it was a bold example of, like, character development and uh, continuity between episodes when it happened in The Mind of Evil in 1971 when the Doctor sees uh, the Inferno planet. Like, he gets hooked up to the machine and he's like, oh, that was scary when that happened an episode ago. Um, it was great then, but now uh, I'm, not, I'm not as impressed. Although I do like the dregs and I like the whole, like, don't look at this image sort of scary aspect of the dregs, you know, like if you do bad things to the planet, you'll see a dreg and you'll get really scared. Um, I like that aspect of them. But no, I was not impressed with the dreg appearance, I must say. I think there's an inherent comedy in it because um, obviously I agree, the idea of it is good. The idea of it, I think, is actually is great. Like the idea of a companion going on an adventure and being so you know shaken by what they saw at that point of the future Earth that it actually becomes something that haunts them and keeps coming back. That, that is what good shows do. But in this case, I think just because Orphan 55 was such a clusterfuck and the dregs are so associated with crapness, for it to come back and be played seriously, it's like, oh my God. It's like a parody of something good, and it's just... <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I, can I circle back to the 13 dismissing Graham scene, since we're nearing the end of this conversation now, and ask, uh, what defences have you seen of this exchange? Uh, I've got a defence that I just, like, came up with, um, which is that it's a scene from the start of the episode that accidentally got put, like, as the last scene. <laughs> Like, it's, it's, here's 13's character development. She's going to redeem herself, you know. She has to overcome. But, like, some, some assistant accidentally put the first page of the script, like, at the end. I mean, given Chaos and Cardiff, that could have actually happened. <laughs> you never know. 
<laughs> yeah. I think we're seeing a lot of stuff about how it was it was great character writing because, you know, 13 is socially awkward and it's realistic. And look, Graham smiled. Graham was clearly fine with it. You know, he, he just needed to be heard, right? Even though yeah. she blatantly didn't really like, listen that much to what he was saying, not enough to come up with a, a meaningful response. You know, clearly, he, you know, Graham felt heard and that made it fine. We're seeing a lot of people falling into this trap of, uh, I know someone has a quote talking about, Novels aren't gossip about imaginary people. 13 isn't real. And so when people try and justify this scene saying, well, that's how awkward people act. She's not an awkward person. She's not a person. She's an actress and lines on a page. And the character she's playing is the hero. And it's meant to be the one children model themselves after. It's meant to be the one you look up to. It's meant to be generally a model of good behavior, the doctor. And when the doctor's not being a model of good behavior, it's meant to be interrogated by the story. Like Twelve's Many Flaws being so often interrogated by Clara and by the show's writing in general. And so when you get 13 respond to a guy clearly, you know, tearing his heart out and being so vulnerable and scared. And her response is to talk about how I'm socially awkward, so I'm not going to do anything to help you. I'm going to go change the topic. When I see people do their mental gymnastics to justify that and like say it's great because some awkward people actually do that that doesn't make it good when they do it either like representation isn't good just for being you know it's if someone does something bad depicting that bad thing on screen isn't inherently a good thing do you know where i'm going with this yeah and i think that like socially awkward people especially children are like more likely to imitate behavior of like people they see on television and i'm speaking from first-hand experience here you know like i was an awkward child and like the fact that she um, makes such a show out of being socially awkward, like, it's not necessarily the issue that she is socially awkward, of course. Like, they could have had a beat where she's like, look, I'm socially awkward, I'm not that great at dealing with emotional situations, but, like, I'm, I'm here, like, I'm on your side or whatever. But instead she makes this whole, like, comical, like, song and dance about it. Like, it's, it's cool and funny that I'm so detached and, and whatnot. And it's just like, I don't know, it's kind of, it feels like the the mode in which the doctor is written where she's just so wacky, like at the expense of actually sort of dealing with human beings in any meaningful way. It feels like it's like reached a limit with this episode. Like yeah. I just can't, I can't listen to her, like this character written in this way anymore. Um, I just feel like something needs to change. Like, I, and it's not the first time I feel like the doctor's behavior has crossed over the line either. Like I feel like in series 10, like 12 has a remark about like some random stranger walking by has like appalling hair or whatever. And I'm like, that's not okay. Like that's not funny or, you know, um, but yeah, this feels like a, like a boiling point. Like, you know, it's one of her, one of her friends in the show is like opening his heart out and that's not the series 10 example i would have picked you know you've got the lie of the land incident <laughs> but you know fair enough oh yeah well the appalling hair is in lie of the land as well so oh, i think toby whithouse yeah. might just be a bit of a <laughs> bit, bit of a psycho yeah 13 didn't need to do a good job of comforting it raw no one's asking well certainly i'm not asking for her to do a good job of it she just all she had to do was not make it entirely about herself and then ignore him she could have done anything else. She could have said nothing. She could have awkwardly smiled. She could have done a real good job and put a hand on his shoulder. She could have said, I don't know what to say. That must be hard for you. She could have said anything that in the slightest way acknowledged him or at least made an attempt to make him feel better or make him feel heard. She didn't have to do a good job. She just had to try to do a job at all. But she just made it entirely about herself and, you know, then effed off. And yeah, maybe that is realistic for some awkward people. 
But that's not a good thing to make your hero character do uninterrogated on television then. It just being realistic isn't a good thing. Well, look at it this way. Maybe she came back and apologised and said something really heartfelt, but it was off screen, like Tahila's <laughs> entire character arc and her overcoming her fear of the Chagaskas. That was off screen too. You know, we don't see. That's how this era works. The Tahira thing about overcoming her screen, uh, uh, about her, uh, about overcoming her terror of Chagaskas off screen was actually, it's so baffling. I thought I was going mad because wasn't it supposed to be like uh, a big uh, theme of a, of an episode of an actual character defeating like their fears or overcoming their uh, bad situations or stuff? Why does it have to be entirely off screen? Like not a hint of anything, uh, <laughs> not a hint of actual progress on screen. It was just. I, I don't have words for this, actually. It's just a running gag of this era at this point. You know, it's, it stretches as far back as the ghost monument and the off-screen door. And the script of the woman who fell to Earth, there's just this bizarre constant theme of things happening off-screen that really shouldn't be. We don't see. I have no idea why this is the case, but it's gotten to the point where I laugh every time it happens in an episode, just because it's like clockwork. Showing the door off-screen or, I don't know, some cool thing of screen it's is one thing but skipping actual development that's uh, that is supposed to be here that is uh, what could be interesting about the app uh, and just 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 keeping making it uh, off screen yeah. it's is it's like it's uh, progresses <laughs> from in every episode i think in the finale it will be just beginning when the introduce everything off screen and in the end the doctor gives a speech. Well, I think it kind of peaked last year when we had an entire season off screen. <laughs> yeah. Just one, I think Chibnall obviously read the Wikipedia article about uh, Islamic tradition of uh, mental health treatment in the uh, classic hospitals in Aleppo and crowbarred it into the script and that's why that whole aspect of the script is so half-baked. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you've been referring to Selen and his pal as Eternals. But, like, I don't think the episode was... I don't think they were supposed to be Eternals. Um, well, you know, he did say, you know, Eternals have their games. This is a great board for a game. That seemed to me to suggest... No. Yeah, I don't know. They spe they, the Eternals have their games. These guys specialise in board games, right? Guardians have their power struggles. <sighs> Eternals have their games. But, like, no, I, I'm not saying it's, like, your mistake. I think it's a testament to the ineptitude of the writing of this episode. But, like... Come on, they're not Eternals, are they? Yeah, like, no, they're really? not. Like, Eternals no. were in a good episode called Enlightenment. <laughs> they had very clear, clearly defined characteristics, none of which are shared by Zelen. Yeah. So, you know. But, and the constant referral to Ephemerals and Eternals, while they're not actually Eternals themselves, it feels like Chib just sort of, like, smoke and mirrors with the audience. Like, they won't, like, people will think they're Eternals, but they're also not. It's just, like, trying to please every audience member. Hey, remember good thing you liked? Look, we mentioned it. Look, it's the Jadoon. Look, it's Jack. Gallifrey. Um, just one other thing I wanted to say was that probably my favourite moment of the episode was the first time the finger thing actually happens. Because I thought that was a really cool just visual and I liked the sort of jankiness of the effect. It reminded me of um, in the Leisure Hive when Tom Baker, like, yeah. his limbs get pulled apart. But um, then it just kept happening and I'm like, oh, it's a shtick. Like, I thought it was going to be, like, this guy, you don't know how he's going to, you know, come at you, but it's just the fingers every time. Like, it's just a, 
it's as good as a catchphrase, you know, like delete, delete. Why did they go in the way they did? Shouldn't the fingertip have gone inside the ear? I was really confused by like the stem going inside. I liked it just because of the implication of like, that's not a bit of the finger that would normally make contact, you know, without wanting to get graphic, but you know, it's creepy. Like it's a creepy image, you know? Look, Frankenstein. <laughs> that's a written. Killer of hope. That's a written. Very cliche. That's a written. Killer of hope. That's a written. Very cliche. That's a written. Killer of hope. That's a written. Very cliche. That's a written. Killer of hope. That's a written. Very cliche. But I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. That's all this here is. You don't even have to watch it in order. That's a written. Very cliche. 